Well, good morning to Rivermont Presbyterian Church. I'm so delighted to be here again. It's been a number of years. Only you really old people would remember. Uh, but it's good to be back in Lynchburg. And I have to say, uh, my whole family, I think, is indebted to the state of Virginia. You've educated half of our family. Uh, I, I graduated from the University of Virginia. My son-in-law and daughter spent three years in Charlottesville studying law. And another son graduated from W&L Law School. And you trained one of my sons at Quantico as a Marine officer. And, and I had a son who played basketball at Hampton Sydney College. I know I get a big boo on that here in Lynchburg. Uh, but, uh, and then he married a delightful young lady from Sweetbriar College. And Ron Cox did the premarital uh, counseling. So I'm greatly indebted to you. And I'm just here to say thank you. <laughs> but I'm also here, uh, delighted to be here because of the men's retreat that I enjoyed uh, this weekend, being with so many of your men. And ladies, uh, we did our best to get them well trained for you. So we sent them back home yesterday. I, I'm, I'm sure they were much better than when you sent them off on Friday. Uh, but it's great to be here with David Weber and Ron Cox and of course, Mike Palumbo has been so uh, hospitable. And uh, and then to be wearing Brett's robe this morning. Did you recognize it? Yeah. So uh, I feel like I'm back home. It's good to be with you. I'm delighted that you've been studying the disciplines of the Christian life. Because it is through the disciplines that we get to know Jesus Christ more intimately. So uh, there's hardly a better topic that we could be studying. And uh, today we're looking at the discipline of service. And for that purpose, we're looking at John chapter 13. If you want to take your Bibles and open there, we'll be reading in just a moment. And let me just give a comment about John 13 before we read it. You know, John's gospel opens up with this magnificent prologue and, of course, has a very recognizable epilogue as well uh, with uh, Peter uh, dealing with Jesus at the Sea of Galilee before Jesus' resurrection. But the main portion of John can be divided into half. The first portion of John, uh, chapters uh, 1 through 12, are called uh, by many New Testament scholars the book of signs. Because, you know, Jesus is performing various signs that tell us something about who he is and what he came to do. So, for example, you remember in chapter 2, the first sign, he changes water into wine, showing us, and it was done, of course, in the cleansing jars of the Jews. And he shows us there's a new day that's come in Jesus Christ. We're not cleansing ourselves in the old way with ritual ablutions, but with this new wine that only Jesus provides. And then, of course, you remember the the healing of the the official son in the end of chapter 4. And then chapter 5, the healing of the the man at the pool of Bethsaida and and the breaking of the bread to feed the 5,000, and the stilling of the storm, these signs that he performed that showed us who he was and what he came to do. The healing of the man born blind in chapter 9. And then, of course, that greatest of the seven signs, the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. During this whole time, Jesus has been saying to his disciples and to the public uh, that the hour has not yet come. And we find as we read John that the hour has to do with his crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension. It's that great work of redemption. That's the hour, as John calls it. Now, when we turn to chapter 13, where we're going to begin our reading today, 
This is a major turn in the gospel. We're going from the book of signs to the hour, the book of glory. Because it is at the cross where God is glorified. It's a grisly uh, uh, operation, crucifixion. But God is glorified in it. And so scholars will call chapters 13 through chapter 20 the book of glory. Now, as this book opens up to us then in chapter 13, we also find that Jesus' ministry takes another turn because in the first 12 chapters, Jesus has been ministering largely to the public. He does minister to his disciples. He always has side comments for his disciples, always trains them along the way. But he's been in public the whole time. Now, when we come to John chapter 13, we go private. And Jesus is largely teaching his disciples in a very intimate way. And so when we turn to 13, we come to what is known as the famous upper room discourse, chapters 13 through 17. And this upper room discourse begins with one of the key Christian disciplines that Jesus models for us. It's the discipline of service. Isn't it interesting that in the book of glory, In the upper room discourse, when he's teaching his disciples, this is the first thing they talk about, is how we love and serve one another. It's amazing. So with that in mind, let's turn to John chapter 13. And would you join me in prayer as we ask the Lord not only to teach us the the words and the knowledge here, but the deepest insights that will change our hearts, that we too may become the servants he wants us to be. Let us pray. Father, we are deeply grateful for your love for us and pray that as we study that love this morning, in these few moments, that uh, you will inspire us to love one another. Lord, we are your servants. We've gathered to hear your word. We desire to hear your voice. And so we pray, speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. John chapter 13, verse 1, hear the word of God. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, 
The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. All flesh is grass and all of its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The most natural thing in my life and probably yours too is to be served. I love for people to serve me. Yeah, I just had my breakfast this morning and people were heating up my blueberry muffin and getting stuff for me and asking me how I'm doing. Woo, it feels good to be served. And we're experts at it. And we notice when our service is inferior and when people don't render to us the dignity that we deserve as a customer or whatever we are. So we're quite good at being served and not so good oftentimes at serving. I've found myself at Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis. And by the way, we're so happy to be your denominational brothers and sisters. And it's good to be in an EPC church this morning. But we, at Second, I've, I've just noticed so many people who are excellent in their service. And I've always felt I'll never be able to repay these people. I mean, only Jesus will be able to repay them. They're just out serving me all the time. There are some of you who do that. But for the lion's share of us, uh, we do find it difficult to serve to humble ourselves and serve other people. My predecessor at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, where I served for nine years, uh, was Dr. George Long. And his wife, Catherine, was one of my dear friends and mentors. And she said one day, Sandy, you'll know if you have the heart of a servant by the way that you react when you're treated like one. Isn't it true? When people treat us like a servant, we're indignant. But ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly who we are. We're the Lord's servants. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. And listen to the rest of this. And ourselves as your servants for his sake. It was part of Paul's gospel that he preached Jesus Christ as Lord and himself as a servant of the church for Jesus' sake, as part of our gospel and part of our testimony. So it is mightily significant that we look at this text and say, Lord, please teach me. Lord, please shape me and make me like yourself. Now, in order to be a servant in a distinctively Christian way, there's only one way I think the Bible teaches us to do it. With all the resistance in our flesh to such a thing, The only way we're going to have a breakthrough is by the power of God. 
And in order to be the servant He wants us to be, we're going to have to look to God. We're going to have to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and cast ourselves completely upon His mercy. And the main thing I want you to notice in these first 11 verses, if you'll look at your outline in the bulletin, we put that in there to keep you awake, by the way. And those little blanks are so that you can just stay awake because you want to fill in the blanks. Uh, That's part of it. But look at Roman numeral number one. You'll see the first major category of this text. And that is... We must be served by Jesus. The fact of the matter is, you're not going to be a servant like Jesus until you're served by Jesus. And there are a lot of people in this room who resist that. Oh, I don't need that. We're going to find that you really desperately need it, and it's absolutely essential that you learn how to receive the gift of Jesus' service to you. Now, in order to do that, let's look at these Five things. I've got four listed there. There are actually five, so you can put in the E there. There's going to be a fifth one. Somehow I left out verses 6 through 11, which are crucial to this text. That's just the way it goes when you get old. But let's notice that this service of Jesus, let's notice five things about it. A on your outline is this. His love is unfailing. So in His service, it comes from love that is absolutely unending. Look at the text. In verse 1, we read, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Do you see how intentional Jesus is? Do you see how intense He is in His love? And do you see that that love will never end? Jesus became your servant He's been your servant from all eternity. He's your servant into eternity. And you won't reach eternity unless He is your servant. Not that you deserve it, but out of His grace, He has chosen to love you from all time to all time. There's nothing, says the Apostle Paul, that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Your cancer, your divorce, your the bad shape of your body that you don't like, uh, your unpopularity, uh, your flunking courses in school, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So notice about His service. It comes from total commitment to you from beginning to end. It's amazing that He does that for us. And notice that it's at Passover. That's no, uh, that's no accident. Jesus is doing this during Passover. The Passover lamb was sacrificed for us. Jesus is laying down His life for us. He's showing us exactly what God's love is like in service. Now, secondly, B, verse 2. His salvation is gracious. Why do I say that? Look at the text in verse 2. During supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. Jesus is washing everybody's feet, including the church rebel and the one who's going to stab him in the back going to turn him in, betray him, Judas. And Jesus washes his feet. Oh, he's massively gracious. So often Presbyterians who know how to do things right and keep things nicely in order, we are decent and in order. And we know how to do this. And we take pride in it, frankly. And we, we forget that God's love has nothing to do with how we dress up, how clean we are, how good we are, and how successful we are. No, no, no. His love is completely gracious. He loves sinners. He loves bad people, which means you qualify. 
So, <laughs> praise God. Uh, this sanctuary is full of bad people who have been served by the Lord Jesus Christ graciously because He loves bad people. Why He loves you, why He loves me, I have no idea. It's, that's the reason that John Newton says, amazing grace. I mean, it's amazing. We'll be astonished at it for all eternity that He loves people like us. Chuck Swindoll once told a story. He said, let me tell you what grace is like. He said, you parents, I want you to imagine that the child you love is terribly mistreated in the worst possible way you can imagine by some very evil person. And then after mistreating your child, he kills your child. And you find out who this person is. Swindoll says you've got a choice. You can either do what I would be inclined to do, which is go take care of this myself, or you can hand him over to justice and let the law officers handle it. Well, let's assume you take the better choice. The law officers handle it. He's convicted of the crime, and he's put in in prison and sentenced to death. Swindoll says, then you decide you're going to go visit him in prison. And you walk down that dark, dank hall and the guard unlocks the door and there is the person who abused and killed your child. And you sit down in front of him and you tell him you forgive him for all of his sins. And then you adopt him as your son. That's what God did for you. That's grace. Jesus comes washing very dirty feet of very dirty people. And we are so glad He does. Now look next at verse 3. And you'll see something about His sacrifice. His sacrifice is doxological. Notice that Jesus doesn't wash feet because He has low self-esteem. So often, the people who are serving in churches and in other institutions are people who just don't have the confidence to be up front. They want to take the back row. They feel unworthy. They just came from their psychiatrist. Who, and it went kind of like this. You went to your psychiatrist and he says, what's your problem? And you said, well, I think I have an inferiority complex. So he gives you some tests. You come back for your second visit and he says, you don't have an inferiority complex. Oh, really? Complex? No. You say, really? He says, no, you're just really inferior. Uh, and, then, and then you say to him, oh, I'd, I'd like a second opinion. He says, okay, you're ugly too. Uh, now, a lot of people kind of go through life and feel like that's the way they're being treated. And, and so they'll sometimes do the lowly service because they just don't think they're worthy. Look, cut all that out. Look at Jesus. Jesus knows that everything has been given into his hands. He knows He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. He knows where He came from as a member of the triune God. And He knows where He's going to ultimate glory. No one could have more rightly high esteem than the Lord Jesus Christ. He washed feet because He was glorifying His Father. And that's Christian service. You know who you are. You know where you came from and you know where you're going and you know who has you in his hands. 
You know that one day you will be clothed in perfect righteousness visibly and you will have a resurrected body like the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be ruling the universe at His right hand. And thus you serve. So we serve as people who are princes and princesses incognito in this life. That's what Jesus was. He was incognito. He was wearing our flesh. He looked just like one of us, but He knew He wasn't. And we look just like our neighbor next door, but we're not. We're destined for greatness. So we do not serve out of low self-esteem. We serve out of great confidence in the Lord's mercy toward us and where we're headed. So we must notice that about His service to us because it has something to do with our service to others. Now look at verse 4 and 5. And here we see that His service is humble. Look at the text. At verse 4 we're told, that he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking on a towel. This whole process is to show us the necessity of being cleansed in order to be one of God's people. And Jesus is showing us the real cleansing process. Now, if you've traveled the world, you've seen people of all different religions try to cleanse themselves. I've stood by the shores of the Ganges River in India and watched the Hindus go into the river trying to cleanse themselves. I've watched the Muslims in their mosques uh, apply the ablutions, the water washings to try to cleanse themselves. And Some of you have a Roman Catholic background where hopefully the baptism and the sacraments will cleanse you. Jesus is saying, no, there's a total different cleansing that you need in order to be truly cleansed. And it's a spiritual cleansing that comes from Jesus Christ. And it's based on His work on Calvary's cross. And it necessitates His incarnation. And that's what it means for Him to take off His outer garments. He lays aside the accoutrements of His glory. He lays aside His outer garments and takes up a towel. That's exactly what He did for us. It's very, very humbling And very humble. And notice what else he does after he put on the towel. Verse 5, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around them. Now, when I go back to Memphis, I'm going to tell folks there that, you know, those EPC people up in Lynchburg, they had a foot washing ceremony right there in the service on Sunday morning. Uh, I didn't know Mike was going to do that. I thought that was really terrific. You know, have a good foot washing. Uh, but real foot washing is serving people in the ways they need to be served. And this is what Jesus did. If you lived in the first century, if you lived in the near ancient Near East, where Israel is, and if you had walked those roads and pathways and fields, some of you would have sandals if you had provision. Some of you would be poor. You wouldn't even have sandals. And when you're walking around on dusty roads, your feet get really dirty. Remember that in Israel there were a lot of sheep. And I don't know if you've ever walked through a sheep field. But if you have, you have had a job to clean off your boots when you got to the other end of the field. The field is very dirty, isn't it? And that's the way people's feet were. Just imagine all the dirt and filth of fields and roads, squeezed between your toes, baking there for a full day. And as Mike said, smelling juicy. 
It was so bad that no Israelite, scholars tell us, would ever wash feet. It was inhumane to ask a brother Jew or a sister Jew to wash your feet. Only the lowest hired Gentile slave would wash feet. Jesus scandalized this entire dinner by getting up and doing what only a hired Gentile slave would do. He lowered himself to the lowest possible service. And the reason is he wanted to show us what his service is really like. When he died on the cross, he humbled himself. And that's the reason that we've come to him. Because even when he invites us to him, him, he reminds us that he's humble. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And probably those of us who came to Christ as adults and who remember it clearly, it probably happened through some people who had something of that humility in their own hearts to which we were drawn. Jesus shows us that His service is humble. Now, fifthly, you can write an E in there. His gift is necessary. And this is a very important point in verses 6 through 11. Let me just quickly say this. Peter, who had a very bad habit of saying, No, Lord, those two words do not go together. You can say no or you can say yes, Lord, but you can't say no, Lord. That's a contradiction in terms. It's an oxymoron. Peter does it frequently. And here he says, no, Lord, you'll not wash my feet. Why? He's embarrassed to have someone wash his feet who's not a hired Gentile slave. He doesn't want his feet washed by the king of kings. And probably you don't either. You know, it's very difficult to receive grace. Uh, my friend Wilson Benton was pastor of Kirk of the Hills Presbyterian Church uh, in St. Louis for years. And he told me one time about a car wash they had where the youth, you know, sometimes will have a car wash to raise money for missions. And we all love to go into the parking lot and get the car wash. And we give a little extra money for the car wash because we want to support their missions trip. So churches are used to doing that. And Kirk of the Hills was used to that. But this car wash was different. The youth group decided we're going to have a car wash for no purpose of all except just to wash people's cars. We just want to serve people and wash their car. And there'll be no charge. So it said on the highway, free car wash. Well, people would turn in and get a free car wash, but the church members would turn in and they would say, we know it's free, but here's some money for missions or whatever it is you're raising money for. And the kids would not receive it. One man got so mad. He, he tried to give her money. She gave it back. He wadded up, threw it out the window. She put it back in the back seat. And he was just steaming mad because he couldn't understand a free car wash. And it's illustrative of Presbyterians. It really is. We, we, we think, you know, well, I mean, I'm here on Sunday and the Lord pleased with that. I mean, after all, I have a certain entitlement. I was baptized and Christianized and sanitized and my mom and daddy and my grandmama was Sunday school teacher and we go on and on. It's free and it's undeserved and you must receive it. And if you don't, you will not be a good servant because that's the distinctive of Christian service. It's given away free 
no strings attached. Now, let's look to the second half of this text quickly. Roman numeral number two on your outline. We must likewise serve one another. This is the point Jesus is making. He's saying, you watch what I did, now you do it. Now, let's look first of all in verse 22. And here we're going to learn, this is A, his instruction is profound. It's profound. He says in verse uh, 22, I'm sorry, uh, not 22, I can't read, 12. In verse 12, he says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. So Jesus has now taken back his place and he's now he's going to teach as the rabbi. And he says to him, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. There's the instruction. It is profound. This is what we do in relationships. And the sooner we find out, the better Christians we're going to be and the more honor and glory we're going to bring to God. This issue of service came to my mind when I was pastoring the first church I pastored at 30 years of age. And uh, we had a small church, and our youth group had all of three people in it. And two of them were socially a little off. So it was not a youth group you'd be excited to send your kids to, nor that you'd be excited to go to. I just have to be honest. So we had this nice new family that comes to town. And they have a 15-year-old daughter. And so I, we go to lunch. I'm following up on church visitation. We go to lunch, and I say, Ken, it's really nice to meet you. Tell me about yourself. And he did. And I said, well, what are you looking for in church? And he said, well, you know, it's interesting. We're, we've told our 15-year-old daughter, she's our, our last child, and she's the only one left at home, and we've told her this time we're choosing a church based on what you want to do. I said, Ken, it's been nice knowing you. And I said, <laughs> I said, there are some churches with great youth groups in town. Let me give you two or three of them. And he said, well, hold on, hold on. I said, well, look, I, I want you to be in the right place. And she needs to be, if, if you're looking for a good youth group, that's what you need to do. So I, I basically, you know, said goodbye to him. Well, the next Sunday, after the Sunday evening service, I'm out on the church sidewalk. And this 15-year-old girl comes up to me. Her name's Elisa. Elisa said, Pastor Sandy? I said, yes. She said, can I talk to you? I said, sure, sweetie. She said, um, you know, all my life, I've been served by other people. And I think now at 15 years of age, I probably need to concentrate on serving other people. And so I think I'd really like to get involved in the youth group here and be a servant. Well, after she picked me up off the ground, uh, I just I fell down and worshipped her and kissed her feet. And <laughs> Let me tell you what happened. This 15-year-old sophomore... Over the next two years, our youth group grew from three to about 30. And leadership was developed so that she wasn't even the chief leader by the time she was graduating as a senior. And I looked at the youth group and I said, that's Lisa's group. She just decided to be a servant. Some of you are elders and you know you're to be apt to teach. And you say, well, you know, nobody's asking me. You know why? Because you're assuming that you're to teach your peers. Very few people can teach their peers. I always tell elders, just go down. Try going down 10, 15 years. You'll find people are more open to what you have to say because you've been there, done that, and you have a little bit of experience. Doesn't work for you? Go down 20. Doesn't work for you? Go down 40. Junior highs don't want you? Keep going on down, and you'll end up in the nursery. 
And I've never found a nursery worker who turned away a cheerful elder who offers to serve. And you can teach the babies the love of Jesus. I'm dead serious. You want to serve the way you want to serve. But when you serve like Jesus, you go down to where the need is and where your gifts are going to be useful. Some of you are struggling with your daughters-in-law. Not because you told me, but because you're human. Let me tell you the key to in-law relationships. Be a servant. Instead of worrying about whether you have a key relationship and her natural mother is much closer to her than you are, and worrying about the joy of your relationship and how it's going, just be a servant and be satisfied with serving. You'll find you have all kinds of relationships if they're based on service. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the key to human relationships. But notice not only is his instruction profound, but go to B, his rationale is simple. He says, I'm the teacher. I did this for you. You do it for others. That's the reason that you must receive the service of Jesus Christ. What He's done for you on Calvary's cross, what He's done for you in sending His Spirit, what He's done for you in cleansing your record and cleansing your soul. All of this, not by anything that you've done, but what He's done. You've been served, and therefore now you're set up to be a servant. And if you know Him and you've been blessed by Him, you will serve. That's the way it works. You know, in the early church, it was working like crazy. People got it. They understood. In the second century, uh, the church, you know, was being persecuted. And they had a representative who went to the king to appeal on their behalf. And from what I understand, this king, uh, uh, this uh, 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 advocate for the church, was not a Christian. His name was Aristides. He was a lawyer. And he was speaking up to the king on behalf of the church in their defense. Listen to his defense before the king. He says, this is early second century. He says, but the Christians, O king... If one or other of them have bondmen and bondwomen or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. They love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the Spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O King, is the commandment of the law of the Christians, and such is their manner of life. Verily, O King, this is a new people. And there is something divine in the midst of them. Tertullian in the next century said, these Christians, they love one another. That's what Jesus is teaching us with a simple rationale. I did it for you. 
You must do it for one another. Then lastly, look at verse 17. And we see a promise. And His promise is indeed inspiring. Here's the way He puts it. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed. Blessed by whom? Blessed by the living God who holds the planets and the galaxies and the entire universe in His hands. Blessed by the God who can heal you of all your diseases, who can redeem your life from the pit and crown you with love and compassion. This great God is the one who says, I will bless you. Blessed if you do it. Not if you just know it doctrinally. Not if you can just memorize the verse. But blessed are those who do it. And ladies and gentlemen, the greatest blessing of all in this life and the next is that when we enter spiritual disciplines, including the discipline of service, we find their ultimate purpose in this. We know Him better. If you would really know Christ, of course you must know intellectually the gospel and assent to it. But if you really want to know Him, you follow Him. And this is what He does. He serves. Let us pray. Father, how can we adequately thank You for Your great kindness to us in sending Your Son, Jesus Christ, to be our servant? It's hard to say it. For He is the glorious Lord, enthroned forever. And yet You sent Him to be our servant. We once again are moved by Your great Kindness to us. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And our prayer now, O God, is that You would make us like Him. That You would move upon our hearts with the gospel of Jesus' service and make us the servants You want us to be. This is our prayer. And we make it in the blessed, blessed name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.